Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Good morning. It's good to see everyone. Thanks for being here this morning. And a thanks to Bren for teaching a really difficult passage last week out of James 4, 4 through 10. Uh, I, I w- had a chance to listen to it online. I wasn't here and just uh, so thankful to have Bren in the pulpit to encouraging us by God's word. And isn't it amazing how even a statement like you adulterous people can end up being encouraging? It, it's encouraging because it reminds us of a relationship that we have with God that we oftentimes forget or we maybe don't truly believe. You know, we are the beloved ones of God. We are his very beloved ones that he bought at great cost to himself through Jesus Christ on the cross. You know, if you've never read the, the book Hosea, I would encourage you to read it sometime. It's near the end of your Old Testament at the beginning of the section called the Minor Prophets. Not minor because they're not important, just minor because they're not as long as the other guys. And, and God does something interesting with the prophet Hosea. He asks him to go and marry someone who he knows will be unfaithful to him. And it's meant to be an image of God's people, Israel, but also of us and how we tend to treat God. You know, we constantly push back against our relationship with him, want to run away to other loves, other idols, other ones who are beloved for us in this world. And sadly, we act all too often as Scripture says throughout the Old Testament, as Hosea says in Hosea 1, as whores. Those who don't rightly love the one who's loved us well, right? That's, that's an image that James is using when he says, you adulterous people. Then we walk away constantly not loving the one we should love. And yet here is what is so amazing about our God. Look what he says he does for us. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her, that's you and me, Hey, allure, woo, bring us back and bring her into the wilderness. That's a picture of the garden, a bunch of life in the midst of a dead desert and speak tenderly to her, to me and you. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. God, God comes after me and you. He woos us, draws us back to himself constantly for the first time when we have faith in Jesus, but then again and again as our hearts so quickly turn to love other things in this world. And he says that he's going to build this beautiful relationship with us where we say this very intimate phrase, my beloved husband, to him, and not this distant phrase of my Baal, meaning my master or my Lord. He wants you to to live in that relationship with him. And James is so good amidst all these things that he keeps encouraging us to do, all these ways to walk out our faith rightly, to never let us go to the place where we think what he's saying and what his letter is encouraging us to do is just to say, well, if I just buck up a little more, if I just try a little bit harder, maybe then God will finally love me. You know, James, James won't let us go there. In fact, I think that last section that that Bren taught on was James was probably feeling the tension that people were maybe getting there in this letter, feeling like there's all these things that they should do, work out in their faith. 
And he wants to remind us that it's ultimately not a problem of doing, but it's a problem of our relationship. We have a relationship problem with God. You know, that we are meant to be in relationship with him. And so the solution is not to fix everything, but rather come back to a loving relationship with our good God who is wooing us, loving us, caring for us, and both working harder and coming back into right relationship with God will, will have expressions in our lives. But only one comes out of a heart of a loving relationship. Well, that, it's out of that reminder that James is, is telling us all these things throughout James. And, and that's where we come today in James 4, 11 through 12. He's still talking in this big context of ways that we can walk out our faith and in particular, ways that we can pursue peace with one another in the difficulties that we might have with one another. And he is coming back and reminding us about our tongues and how we should not speak evil to one another. You know, this, this might be something for you that you feel like you've thought about before. For some of you, it might feel a little on the nose for current situations, whether in your personal life, whether in our church life. I'm just so thankful for James that God has given us this passage and our section in this season to encourage us as we walk forward together. So look at our start here. Our passage is two verses today. They're a little bit longer. James 4, 11 through 12. You can open it up in your Bibles on your phone app or watch, follow along with me on the screen. It says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? We can see right away that the tone has changed. It's not talking to you adulterous people. It's brothers and sisters. That feels good again to feel like James is bringing us back in as though he's trying to encourage. And it's really this first sentence that's just the main point. Do not speak evil against one another. That seems pretty simple. I shouldn't have bad things come out of my mouth. But we should also notice when we look at this passage, some repetition. There's a couple things going on here. We have this repetition of this phrase to speak evil. He says, don't speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil, it's the same word there, against a brother or judges his brother, speaks evil against the law. There's something going on here. There's a particular phrase he's wanting us to notice. And then look on even further and see how he talks about the law and judging again and again throughout this section. He says, you know, the one who judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there's only one lawgiver and judge. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You know, the repetition here is hinting that there's something else going on in this passage than just the simple first read of not saying bad things, hurtful things out of our mouth. And there's a specific kind of speaking evil that James is wanting us to notice here, and he's pairing it with this idea of judging and how it pushes us and has us breaking the law if we do this. So we have to do a little bit more digging. Uh, the first question is, what, is, what does James mean then by speaking evil? It, it's one word in the Greek. We have to use a phrase to kind of capture it, and it's only used two other times in the New Testament, and it's used by Peter both times. This is what Peter says. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that's literally just one word, speak evil of you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Or he says it again in 1 Peter 3, have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, same word, having been spoken evil of, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It's that last translation, that idea of slandering others 
that is probably the most helpful English way to think about what James is saying when he says speaking evil. And to speak evil of someone for James in the way the New Testament uses it is to slander them. To try to establish an identity for someone that hurts their reputation. Both these passages in 1 Peter are speaking to that same issue. Peter's talking about it from non-Christians to Christians. That that non-Christians might seek to slander, create a reputation for Christians that by God's grace, Peter is praying won't be true. That, that throughout their lives, by God's grace, they might have walked out through actions and good works that even if non-Christians do see sin in their lives, ultimately, what they're going to see at the end day in judgment was God working in these Christians in ways that demonstrate that God is real in their life. You know, James is saying the same thing, but he's encouraging Christians to not do it to Christians. Brothers and sisters not to do this to other brothers and sisters. To not make an accusation about their brother and sister that would, would hurt their reputation in a permanent way. That would speak to their identity in a hurtful way. So when James says don't speak evil, he's thinking this idea of slandering, talking to identity, the, the essence of who someone is. And he helps us understand that by pairing it with this word judging. Now look what he says. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother. What he's literally saying is this, the one who speaks evil against a brother, the one judging his brother. That second phrase is meant to unpack the first. Uh, For James, this idea of speaking evil, of slandering someone, is the same idea as judging someone. Well, that makes sense when you think about how slandering works. I mean, in general, judging is the idea of preferencing something for either no reason or your own personal reasons. Paul talks about it this way when he talks about days. He says, one person esteems or judges one day is better than another. Well, another esteems or judges all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That's, that's the essence, right? When we judge something, we find a reason to esteem it or not esteem it. And yet when the New Testament talks about judging, it's almost always about judging people and how we shouldn't judge people. We shouldn't do that kind of a thing to people. Look at all these examples here. These are first two are Jesus speaking. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Judge not that you be not judged. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. From these verses, we can see that that the sense here is not to preference someone differently based on their sins, their particular sins, since you and I are guilty of sin as well. Don't unduly judge them. Don't slander them just because they've sinned. Don't make that sin their identity now, James's primary concern here is not just speaking unkind words in general, but in the very specific way that we could slander someone, create an identity, judge them wholly based upon a particular experience or even set of experiences. Now, what we originally might have thought would have been just this simple, the idea of, you know, okay, don't see evil, don't hear evil, don't speak evil, right, is actually a little more complicated in this section, We're talking about something deeper in how we use our words to hurt someone, categorize them, and judge them. And it might be, in one sense, kind of easy to dismiss. Go like, I don't know, that sounds like a really bad thing to do. I hope I never do that. My bigger problem is just having a loose tongue and not saying nice things more often than I should. But when I think about it, I think, sadly, this is where I live, and I think it's where you live 
often. And we live in a culture right now that is all about ranking and judging things. We have Yelp to rate every single food place you might ever have visited. We have Google reviews that is going to talk about every single business you might come in contact with. We have Amazon where we have ranked billions of products that you might ever need to use in your entire life. If you take a Lyft or an Uber, the moment they drop you off, they want you to rate the experience and they rate you in case you didn't know that, right? We go, to do, we, we go anywhere else like dating apps. They want you to sli- swipe left or swipe right to, to rate someone and how well you might pair with them. I, mean, I just stayed at a hotel in Seattle this last weekend and literally upon checkout, my email comes up saying, how would you rate your experience with us? Right? Or I was talking to a Verizon agent just this week, getting a new phone line for one of our kids. And they come on at the very end, the person in person had to ask me, how would you rate my experience today? Whew, that's a little hard, <laughs> right? Our entire culture is encouraging me and you all the time to make snap judgments and decisions about a product, about a business, about a person, and to broadcast that judgment. To make that type of judgment off of a very minimal interaction or even just one interaction with each of these things or people. And even if you're not the person, even if you're not the person who who runs quickly back to Google or Amazon to rate the product you got, I I don't know about you, but I tend to do this. Right? Someone mentions a restaurant, a restaurant that I have had a bad experience, and what comes out of my mouth is, oh, you won't believe what came in my soup that one time. Right? Or if we're talking about a TV show or a movie, something that I haven't enjoyed, someone hasn't enjoyed, the first thing that comes out of our mouth is how much we don't like it. Like my wife who constantly says, please don't turn on Star Trek. I don't know why she doesn't like the cadence of that show. She's probably right. <laughs> or even more sadly, when we have a hard experience in our life with someone, when we, when we struggle with them or we even ex- see that struggle with them and someone else, we often don't give that person another chance. They're now labeled a certain way in our mind. You know, some of those examples like a movie or a TV show, those are probably just preferences, but sadly we push them too much into judgment as though we need to make a judgment call about them as solely good or solely bad. And obviously, it's very different when we deal with a business or a product than dealing with a person in our, in our life, our neighbor. But we can see the continuity of that same heart that wants to judge and push things to that place. You know, it made me even more sad this week as I thought about why I would ever want to do that. Why would I want to judge things in general? But even worse, why would I want to judge a person? Why would I want to make that kind of statement about them? And I realized, I think it comes from my insecurity. It's because I want to be justified. I want to feel good about that. I don't want to be the sole one-star review out of 15,000 four-star reviews. I don't want to think that that's really true, that it was just my experience, that I was the only one that had that bad experience at the restaurant, that I'm the only one that had an argument with that person who was hurt by them. I think there's something broken in me, something broken in all of us, that, that where we think if everyone else had the same experience as us, that would mean that the bad experience really isn't about us. That it's not because I'm a loser that, that the waiter brought me the day-old soup and it didn't taste quite right. That, that it's not because of me that I had a, a, a conversation that went poorly. You know, if, every, if I can get everyone else to just think the same way as I do about that thing, then it's really about that, not about me. Not about any sin in me that might need to be dealt with. I think that's exactly what James is talking about when he's been talking to us about selfish ambition and jealousy that comes up in our disagreements with one another. 
You know, James has seemed to have been seeing this kind of thing amongst his friends that he's writing to. And he wants to encourage them not to go to this extreme. Don't go to this extreme in your disagreements and your arguments with one another where you slander and judge one another when things go awry in your relationship. You know, all throughout chapter 3, James has been saying things like seek wisdom from above in James 3.15 rather than the selfish ambition or jealousy that comes up in our heart in James 3.16. He's been reminding us that the problem that we have is that we have passions at war within us in James 4.1. And we shouldn't be surprised then that one of the sad outworkings of our sin at war within us is a heart that would want to speak evil, that would want to slander that would want to judge someone else, that we might feel justified. We might feel better about ourselves in this situation. We might see ourselves as better or, or uh, much better or much more than we really are or see others as much less or worse than they are. And that's exactly the opposite of what, what Bren, what James was encouraging us with last week, where, where James says, see your sin and be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We should be the first ones to see and notice our sin, our love for the world and not for God, and push away from it, to be humble before everyone. And the last week's section is directly applicable to today, especially in disagreements, as James exhorted us to humility rather than this idea of slandering and judging Yet there's this important distinction or sort of like a tension that we have to walk in this. Uh, James is not telling us not to point out sins in one another. In fact, so much of Scripture encourages us that pointing out sins in one another is actually love. It's actually a nice thing to do for each other. Look at these different passages. Brother, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. James is obviously inferring that it's okay to call out sin in one another because he keeps mentioning all these different ways that we might be failing. These these Christians that he's writing to are likely failing. How we should pursue relationship with God instead of sin you know, in, in many ways, that's what he's saying here in this section about pursuing peace with one another. James even goes on later in his letter in James 5, and he says this. He says, my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And the context there is if you go and you present the sin to someone, if you encourage them to come back to their right relationship with God, you're helping to save them, to encourage them. It's a good thing to help them not to rebel and run to the world, as Bren mentioned last week. And we're called to lovingly point out sin in each other, yet not go to that extreme of speaking evil, of slandering, of judging someone's entire character because of what we see. Our identity as God's beloved ones should never result in us slandering or judging our brothers and sisters. And it shouldn't happen for for two reasons, James says in this section. The two reasons that we should avoid speaking evil in judgment of others. Number one, slander and judgment attempts to usurp the law, to throw it down, to, to say that we're more important than it. And reason number two, slander and judgment attempts to usurp God. Let's look at that first one. If we look back at our passage again, 
We can see right here that James says, the one who speaks evil against a brother or sister, the one who judges his brother or sister, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And then he ends with, who are you to judge your neighbor? It's probably not the first place you would have gone. If you were to say, why shouldn't I speak evil? Why shouldn't I slander? We probably would have said things like, well, it's going to hurt their feelings. It's not going to be nice. It's going to break relationships. That's not going to be helpful. You probably wouldn't have said, because I'm breaking the law and I'm slandering the law. It's not where you probably would have gone. It's a weird statement. Most scholars think that James is thinking about Leviticus 19.16, that this is what's going on in his mind. He's thinking about, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Here, Leviticus is using a very similar analogy, an application that James is using. When James says, don't judge them, Leviticus is saying, don't stand up against their life. Don't make their sin an issue of you're going to categorize their entire life by this one thing and judge them and write them off. You know, in this sense, we are speaking evil against the law when we don't do it. When we don't do what God has asked us to do here in Leviticus, when we don't do what James is asking us, when we ignore both those things, we're ignoring God's word, his good law that reveals God's good and perfect character. This is not how God acts. Praise God. Christian, that God doesn't see one issue in your life and judge you wholly on that one issue across everything. And what's interesting, though, is that, that James 4, 11 through 12 ends with that statement, who are you to judge your neighbor? And not only does that seem to summarize all of James's points, but it's pointing us back to Leviticus 19 here. In fact, there's a broader piece of Leviticus 19, 15 through 18. Look what this bigger piece says. It says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This whole section is about how do we treat brothers and sisters rightly. We don't treat them poorly because they're poor. We don't favor them because they're rich. We don't hate. We don't take vengeance ourselves. And all of this section culminates in what we are told is the second greatest commandment that we should all know. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And James is not just concerned about our cavalier attitude where we might say something about someone that we might regret. James' main concern is that we are not loving our neighbors as ourselves in our disagreements. We're not loving our neighbors as we would want to be loved ourselves. Slandering and judging our neighbor, not following God's good law, means that we aren't loving our neighbors. We don't want the best for them like we would want for ourselves. Uh, We don't view the problem we are having with them as simply this this momentary sin that we are called in love to engage them with, to encourage them with, and yet not make a statement about their entire life with. We go against the second greatest commandment when we do that, that Jesus gave us in Matthew 22. And I have to admit, I haven't thought this way about arguments for much over the, the last past couple years in my life. And when I thought about arguments, it's usually been things like, well, I want to say nice things, true things, good things. If I'm right, I want to try to win and woo people over to my position. But I don't think I approached my arguments or my disagreements primarily with the lens of, am I loving 
this person well? Am I loving them even when I disagree with them? Now, what would it look like then to love your neighbor well in the midst of a disagreement? And James is telling us here what it doesn't look like. James is saying, don't speak evil of them. Don't slander them. Don't make a judgment over their entire life because of this. To love them as we would want to be loved. How, how do we walk out that tension of both pointing out sin in others' lives, yet not going to that extreme of being able to speak evil, to slander, or to judge them? You know, I'd commend to us the story of Paul and Barnabas. It's in Acts 15. We're going to look at it this morning as a great example of how this plays out in action. How you can have a disagreement, yet love your brother or sister well. And I think it has several practical points that we can walk away with. If you don't remember this, it's Acts 15, 36 through 40. It's a pretty quick little section, so we're going to read this. It says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Paul and Barnabas had just finished a missionary journey. They're resting, relaxing, getting ready for the next one. And they say, hey, let's loop back through and go see everybody else again and see how God has been treating them. It says, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark and and with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And there's three points that I I pull out of this. I'm sure there's more, but three main points that I pull out of this interaction with Paul, Barnabas, as Luke describes it, how John Mark was involved. And I think this can help us think about how do we engage in our brokenness and sin, in our hurt and disagreements, in a way that honors and loves our neighbors and avoids speaking evil and judging. So number one, I would say it's okay to acknowledge disagreements without needing people to judge or even encouraging people to judge. Paul and Barnabas acknowledged that they had a sharp disagreement. We even know what that disagreement is about. It's all about John Mark. Aren't you glad your life isn't written down like this in scripture? (laughs) I feel for John Mark. Man, thanks for being an example for us. That he didn't want it. We don't even, we not only know that it's about John Mark, we know the rationale behind it. We know that Paul says he deserted us in Pamphylia. I don't want to take him again. I'm worried he's going to bail again. That's going to make life difficult. We can probably even make some assumptions that, that Barnabas, who has the nickname Son of Encouragement from Acts 4, that he's, he's probably this guy that's like, oh, but man, we can, come on, Mark, we can do it. He's still good. Let's, let's help him. He, we want to help him do this again. And they couldn't come to an agreement. You know, this level of information is helpful, but it's not ever presented to us by Luke as if we were to make a judgment call ourselves. Paul and Barnabas had to come to a decision. For them, this was an issue of a wisdom call, not just a sin issue that they're trying to deal with. And ultimately, they had to make a judgment call. You know, are you and I, are we okay? Can we acknowledge that we're going to have disagreements without needing others to judge that disagreement? without encouraging others to judge the situation? Can you be okay that that, that you, that I, we've had many hard engagements throughout our life that other people just haven't had that same experience as us? You know, if someone was not a part of that process, can you encourage them and help them find first trust in the Lord and the ministry of the gospel more than your perspective of what happened? And if you're the one on the outside can you be okay to allow those brothers and sisters 
to deal and try to find the most godly ending to their disagreement they can find without taking sides? I think that leads to my second point, which is a hard point. It's okay to separate. Again, there seems to be no judgment from Luke about the fact that that Paul and Barnabas separated and went different ways. Uh, Much like James, Luke doesn't make much about the, the argument itself or the practical outcomes, but rather he seems to be most concerned about how he how people handled their themselves in the disagreement. And what's interesting is it seems like Luke, in recording this for us, Paul and Barnabas, John Mark, and even the brothers that were a part of sending them off, seem to believe this was a good choice and potentially even a wise choice when they couldn't come to an agreement on the path forward. You know, Paul talks about this kind of decisions in his life. When he talks about this in Philippians 3, he says this, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. My friends, preserving the faith, not the past is the goal. Preserving the faith, uh, the, the, the movement of the gospel, sharing with others the good news of who God is, not getting stuck in what has happened previously. We could even say, out of this example from Paul and Barnabas, that God multiplied his efforts through this moment of disagreement. There are now two gospel expressions going forth from Paul and Barnabas, one with John Mark, one with Silas. Are you okay that it's going to happen? I don't know many people who could ever say it doesn't, that God might be taking you or others around you in different directions at different times. And that he often uses disagreements as the impetus for that movement. Even if it's part of a disagreement like James has been talking about or what happened with Paul and Barnabas, can you trust God with his placement of his people in his church for his glory? Do you hear that word, his? It's his people that he's going to move around. It's his church that he loves more than you and I will ever love, that he wants to see grown and and, and brought up for his purposes and his glory, that he will bring about his glory from all those sorts of instances, which leads to this last point that is so important. It's imperative to have grace. We have to have grace in these kind of situations. Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark were able to walk out that disagreement in grace. How do I know? Because of what they say later. Paul, when Paul is talking later in 1 Corinthians 9, after years of being separated from Barnabas, he refers to Barnabas as his fellow worker who shares his life and labor. Whatever happened with their disagreement, they still thought well of one another. They still were encouraging and speaking good of one another. And this obviously kept open a path for future ministry. It was similar for John Mark. Whatever Paul's hesitancies were, when Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.11, he says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful in serving me. I don't know if it was Paul's kind of calling out John Mark that helped something change in him. I don't know if it's Barnabas taking him along. Maybe it was a little bit of both. Paul no longer had any hesitancies about John Mark. And, and somehow, here at the very end of Paul's ministry as he's writing to Timothy, God had already restored that relationship with them. I'm sure there are so many other ways we can find throughout Scripture of how we should love our neighbor even in a disagreement. But these three, knowing that it's okay to acknowledge disagreements without needing people to judge or even encouraging judgment, knowing that it's okay to separate and knowing that it's imperative above all to have grace in the midst of that 
seem to be very important to keep in mind. And ultimately, I just would give you one litmus test, as a friend of mine says often, how do people come away from conversations with you? If people are coming away from conversations with you when you talk about some judgment, you've made some difficult situation, if they're coming away quicker to judge, quicker to get angry with you, less likely to trust God in what is going on for the future, I would suggest that you are likely speaking evil and judging those you're in disagreement with. And that is the, the due fruit of that kind of a conversation. If, as if that wasn't enough, James gives us one more reason. One more reason to not run to slander, speaking evil in judgment. It's because it tries to usurp God and his position Look what he says here near the end of this passage. He says, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. When we choose to speak evil, to judge others, we take the beautiful, glorious throne of God, as it were, push it out of the way, and then take our little janky, rickety box of a throne, set it down underneath us, sit down and say, I now am going to decide on how this goes. I have seen enough that from this experience, we, you and me, that somehow we can tell the purposes of God. What hubris, what arrogancy, what pride so sadly that we fall into, that I fall into, that we think we can speak evil of others that way and judge them. We rarely, I don't know about you, I rarely see my own sin and need to have it pointed out, let alone know that I've rightly seen someone else's sin completely and know where theirs starts and mine stops. Remember that verse that we read earlier, those verses we read about judging throughout scripture? This is what Romans 2 says in a little bit larger chunk. It says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? We are sinners. We struggle with the same kind of problems that we see in others. We are ultimately, as Hosea says, the whores who run away from the right relationship we're meant to have with God. We're like James says, we are the adulterous people who do not honor that wonderful, beautiful relationship that we have with God. And we need to submit ourselves before him and humble ourselves. You don't want to sit on that throne because in judging others, you are judging yourselves in a way you would never stand up underneath. We want our glorious God on that throne because he's a God who loves us and judges us not on our merits, but on grace in Jesus Christ. And we need to love our God who's given us all the things that we need in grace in Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. James this morning, he's encouraging us to not speak evil, to not judge and therefore slander someone's reputation. And when we judge and slander someone based upon their sins, instead of just bringing up their sins that we might encourage them and grow them, we're making two mistakes. First, we're not loving our neighbor as the law commands. We should be okay. We should be able to acknowledge our disagreements without judging or encouraging judgment. It's okay to separate when those those disagreements can't be resolved, but it is imperative that we have grace with one another. Why? Why? Because that's primarily who our God is. 
He's a God who loves us in grace. He's given us so much in grace. We should be the ones with everyone else crying out continuously for grace. Grace for us, grace for those that we find ourselves in a disagreement or conflict with. As James said in the last section last week, but he gives more grace. That's what our God does. He gives grace to us. He can give grace to those who've been found in sin. Or as James said previously, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Friends, this is why we need to set aside our ill intention and hubris and pride and instead bow down before a God who judges rightly and with grace and mercy that is far beyond us in Jesus Christ. He is such a better judge than me and you because he knows how to do it in mercy and grace. We don't want to usurp our God. We want to worship him. He's demonstrated mercy and grace to us that we will never fully comprehend. Why would we want to keep that from ourselves and from others? Can we, can we even begin to acknowledge today that our differences, even our disagreements, and still do that with grace and trusting one another to the Lord and his purposes and plans for each of us. And I would suggest that we can only do that if we truly believe our identity in, in God, that we are beloved, that he pursued us amidst our sins and counted us righteous in Jesus Christ. You know, it's in him that we know the truth of what James has been encouraging us this whole time, that we will be made perfect and complete in steps today through the work of his Holy Spirit, but completely one day. Is that what we are looking for? You know, today we want to live as those who know that grace, uh, that we know that liberty and that we extend it out to others so that even when we disagree, we don't speak evil, we do not judge, but rather we love our neighbors wisely and caringly through showing sin and then seeking the Lord together as we see what he might have next for his good and his glory. It's one of the beautiful things that we celebrate in communion. Not only are we talking about this God who's shown us more grace than we ever deserved in Jesus Christ, this God who is working to change us that we might be more conformed to him, but guess what? It's about sitting together at a table. Not just you, not just you and God, you and me, every brother and sister who are covered by the grace of the blood of the lamb, sitting together in unity, fellowshipping together perfectly one day. That's what God's about. That's what James is trying to encourage us towards. Now, this morning as you come to communion, I'd encourage you, confess to the Lord where there might be areas where you, you want to speak evil, you want to judge, you want to slander people because of, of the difficulties you've had, difficulties you've seen. Come to the Lord in grace and mercy. Wonder at it. Marvel at it. Thank God for it and pray for it in every relationship that you have with others. And come pray for unity today in communion with one another. Uh, I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to come up. If you'll take and hold your communion, we'll take, or your, the elements, we'll take it together after the first song. Would you pray with me? Father God, it is hard to look at my sin, Lord. It is hard to see all the different ways in which I do not love as good as you love, that I do not have grace and mercy as good as you have grace and mercy the ways in which you have loved me that I should want for others. Dear God, thank you that I am not a judge. <coughs> Dear God, thank you that no one in this room is judge over the others. Father, we would not have extended the same mercy that you have extended to us. Thank you so much for what you've given us in Jesus Christ. 
Father, would you help us to seek that kind of peace of love for neighbor and love for our God throughout our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.